Welcome to the Open Door Podcast. My name is Anthony. This is a conversation with Dr. Hanifi Baris, a research fellow at the University of Aberdeen who has a Kurdish-Armenian identity. He practiced as a lawyer in Istanbul, Turkey, for around eight years, working closely with human rights. And before his current post as a researcher, he worked at the Grand National Assembly of Turkey as a legislative consultant. In this episode, we talk about his childhood growing up in Turkey, a place hostile to the Kurdish identity and its undermining of its right to exist. We also discuss the Kurdish political philosophy as the population does not have a permanent state of their own. As a person from a cultural group that straddles four countries, a minority everywhere, at the end, I ask him what home and belonging means to him personally. As usual, the timestamps are in the description, but without further delay, this is Dr. Hanifi Baris. Dr. Hanifi Baris, thank you so much for coming on here to talk to me today. I really appreciate you giving me your time. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Anthony. Thank you very much for uh, having me here. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to meet you as well. Um, so I'd like to talk today about cultural identity and the feeling of belonging and cultural homelessness. Um, because I, you told me in the research that you know, you're a Kurdish-Armenian researcher from Turkish Kurdistan. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your childhood first. So my first question to you is, you know, can you give us a bit of a story of where you grew up and your relationship with your identity whilst growing up? Okay, uh, I grew up in a small village. Well, it wasn't that small, but in a village in uh, the city of Batman, which is uh, today's southeast Turkey, uh, and uh, by others known as uh, North Kurdistan, or still by others known as Western Armenia. Um, and uh, growing up there, of course, uh, the first thing I remember was speaking Kurdish, having a Kurdish family. And uh, things were not really uh, that different from any other village until the day I uh, probably uh, heard something said about my Armenian um, forefathers. So things started uh, getting shaky from that moment on. So probably as, uh, as we think of identity, it's like the layers of an onion. Uh, at the core, you and your family, and then probably the, the immediate relatives, then the neighborhood and the village. And suddenly I was made aware of something that made me different from the rest of the village when I was playing with the children. Um, and uh, I then went home, asked my family what these children were speaking about. And probably I was five or six years old. So I realized that I am different from the rest of the kids. Uh, and I had Armenian ancestors. And uh, they were not Muslims, but the rest of the village were Muslims. So start, things started to get shaky for me from that point on. Were, so when you were playing with the children, were they speaking bad about your heritage and bad about your, your culture and identity? What were they saying? Do you remember? Yes, uh, the reference was uh, made to be insulting, of course. And they referred to me as Bafle. Uh, Bafle means uh, uh, having a non-Muslim, actually a Christian father. So it literally means you have a Christian father in Kurdish. Bav means father and Fle means Christian or Armenian in the case of uh, Kurdistan. So uh, that meant to be, of course, insulting because uh, in a predominantly Muslim culture or, or country, when you refer to someone with their Christian or un-Muslim roots, then you meant to be insulting. Yeah, yeah. And how did that affect you? How did that singling out of you, you know, having Christian forefathers, 
how did that affect the way you were growing up in a, dom- a predominantly Muslim neighborhood? Did you want to be um, Muslim like all the other kids when you were growing up? I think it was, I mean, first probably unpleasant until it was maybe at some point traumatic, you could say, uh, because the moment uh, my peers started referring to me uh, or try, trying to hurt me, that was, of course, meant to hurt me in a way because it was said in, in a minute of uh, fight with my peers. So you realize that you are not really completely or fully part of the whole environment. You are kind of estranged from the rest and uh, not really, no matter how much you try, how bad you try, that's what I uh, remember from my family, my father to be specific. So you try so much or so hard to be a full member of that community around you, but your past really never leaves you and never allows you to become a full member. And I felt that about myself as well. So it's not from my mother's side, of course, but from my my father's side, I never felt that I'm a full member of that community or I was made to feel that way. Mm. Uh, the, yeah. the, the, the outcome is the same. So whether I felt it or whether I was made to feel, uh, I don't think from that point on, uh, I quite felt that I'm really a full member of that community anymore. So there was something different about me. I couldn't shake it. I did try to shake it. Uh, I did try to forget about it. Uh, But then there came a moment where I realized that I couldn't really just be like my father. Uh, My father seemed to be accepting it all, you know. He seemed to be in peace with his identity as a Muslim, as a Kurdish. And uh, for me, it wasn't that easy. At, at some point, I realized that, no, I cannot be just a Muslim and a Kurdish. I have an Armenian uh, side or I have Armenian roots. And I have to somehow include these in my life. And when you include it, then you are out of this that circle that makes you Kurdish and Muslim. So it's an uneasy feeling, as I yes. said. No, that's a, that's a very good word to describe it. It's definitely uneasy. Yeah. Because what you said, I totally relate to because as a British born Chinese, there's so many different cultural values that I have to manage. And sometimes these cultural values can contradict each other. And to find out which one to adopt and which one to um, emphasize in different social settings. It's, it's quite a challenge when you're growing up as a, as a child, you're trying to figure out the world and understand the world. But yeah, you're also right in saying that, you know, we're, we're, we don't really belong anywhere fully. We're not really full members of a community. Um, and, but the difference in, I think in your case, if I may say, is that Kurdistan is not uh, an established political sort of entity. It, it, geographically, it is established, but politically, it's not. So um, there's a sense of um, a geographical belonging, but not political belonging. What, what's your um, opinion on Kurdistan right now, as of today, in modern day? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, uh, well, I would like to tell, of course, as much as possible, but it's uh, it's quite a messy, <laughs> um, let's say, uh, situation to try to describe in any way. Uh, as you said, Kurdistan is a political geography or is a geography, a region. Uh, it has been so uh, since times immemorial, probably. Uh, But since there is no Kurdistan as a state uh, and there wasn't Kurdistan even as as an autonomous region like the one we have in Iraqi Kurdistan today, or partially uh, there is an autonomous region of Kurdistan in Syria, back then in 1980s, um, 
there was no political recognition of any sort when it comes to the name of Kurdistan or the geography of Kurdistan. Uh, and uh, my first encounter, uh, let's say, with the with the political authority in Turkey or with the state, the political entity in Turkey, I still remember very vividly uh, was uh, the day when uh, a platoon of uh, Turkish soldiers came to the village and the village folks, those who could escape, run away, they ran away. And those who couldn't uh, were taken to some place and beaten very heavily because there was some, I think, crime committed somewhere. And the way to find out who did commit the crime uh, apparently was beating up people. And uh, so this encounter with the political entity made me as a as a child uh, i still hadn't started uh, school yet so i realizing that something again is very off or very unusual uh, with the political setting over there so back then we didn't really have um, i haven't i hadn't heard the name of kurdistan i i wasn't aware of the uh, the Kurdish political identity or cultural identity yet. And I remember again uh, that when there will be a, um, a visit from the from the Turkish military or the, the gendarmerie, the rural military um, to the village, or when people would know that uh, soldiers will be coming to the village, my mother would bury the tape recordings uh, of Kurdish singers under the ground in our yard. And after they will be leaving, she will be taking them out. So we couldn't, then I slowly realized that, well, we couldn't really freely listen to Kurdish music. It was forbidden. And I realized that my mother will uh, be also hiding the pictures of our relatives who were imprisoned in the city. So slowly when I, um, and, and gradually I realized that there was something uneasy again with between the, the Kurdish communities or the villagers and the official uh, institutions or the officers of, uh, of the state. So um, late in 1990s, then um, um, we started realizing that there is, uh, there used to be a geography or um, a political entity known as Kurdistan. And when the Turkish Republic was established, uh, they made everything about Kurds and Kurdistan prohibited, or they uh, made it illegal, unlawful, or criminal to talk about it, uh, to listen to the Kurdish music, and to demand anything political about the Kurds and Kurdistan. That's the first things that I, I remember from my childhood. And uh, it was, again, I think, more than uneasy, uh, quite traumatic in that sense. Hmm. And, you know, having that memory, that traumatic memory of your, of your mother hiding um, tape recorders that were, you know, related to, Kurd like to Kurdish culture, how does that make you feel towards the, the Turkish government? Do you feel a sense of... Um, anger or what kind of feelings do you have towards the government, Turkish government? Probably the first thing I felt was, of course, fear. If it, if they would ever find out that we listen to Kurdish music, then we will be imprisoned or tortured or killed because there were people who were killed uh, because of listening to Kurdish music. And uh, you start thinking about the, the state or the Turkish political establishment as the enemy or as something that's not friendly. Of course, I didn't, uh, I didn't know the, the, the concept of enemy back then so slow, but I immediately, of course, realized that the Turkish state is something to be afraid of. And whatever you do, uh, whatever you feel about your identity as a Kurd, you have to hide it. So mm. this uh, started from very early. And it was not only the Kurds, of course. Uh, later, I realized that the Alevis, the Armenians, 
in certain places and certain cases, they had to hide their own identity as well. Hmm. So the worst probably thing that, or the most traumatic thing about is uh, uh, about growing up as a Kurdish Armenian in Turkey is you have to hide your identity at certain places. You have to hide your uh, views, political or cultural views in certain settings. And this is uh, common. This is not only about the Kurds. This is common uh, with regard to other minorities, religious and ethnic minorities as well. And that, of course, uh, creates a very huge rift between you and the political establishment. And you never feel part of that establishment. I have never felt, so I, I don't know about other people, of course. And uh, I think there are many people who feel like me. So you never develop a kind of connection, a sense of connection between the political establishment and, your, and, and yourself. And uh, this stays there to this day. Mm. I think that's the, the, the probably the most uh, important thing to emphasize. So if you want to create a rift between you and your citizens, then uh, oppress them so you have created it. And this mm. is what, what, what has been done, uh, I think, by the Turkish political establishment since, since the establishment of the Turkish Republic in 1923. There are two questions that come from that, from what you just said. Um, when the government start uses, as you said, you know, violence and violent tactics to, to get information out of people to make the relevant arrests, for example, um, who committed that crime, there's this sense of fear around people that develops towards the, the regime and and sometimes when you have opinions that are not the same as the political regime you sometimes you develop opinions you know either unconsciously or consciously that are similar to the regime to avoid being targeted to avoid um, being the victim of violence was there at any point in your life where you you sort of had political opinions that were similar to the Turkish government just to avoid um, being targeted or did you just remain quiet and um, not you know express your opinion too much in case of being a victim of the violence? Can you tell us a bit about that relationship? Um, I think this uh, this is a bit complicated uh, and Having, well, uh, I started from my primary school year. I, I, I remember from my primary school years when I started, of course, I wasn't speaking Turkish. I, I started learning Turkish uh, at primary school. And uh, so they, we learned Turkish slowly and gradually, but with, uh, with violence, uh, again at school our teacher will be beating us those who were slow in learning or those who were not uh, uh, who were not doing what they were supposed to do at, at a school setting so they will be beaten and the the teacher would um, again prohibit students from speaking kurdish uh, but in the third and probably fourth year when you get the history the lessons they deliver at the school I started thinking about you know the Turkish uh, leaders or those heroes in history uh, as taught to us at the school so I started thinking okay so these guys are really good guys you know these are heroes they saved us. They used to refer to the founder of the Republic as the unrivaled hero who saved us from, from the enemies. So that creates a confusion. Okay, at home, uh, these people are referred to as oppressors. And at school, they are teaching us that these are heroes, leaders, uh, superhuman uh, in accordance with, with certain qualities. So it created a confusion. And I remember going back home and telling my family, saying that, well, the the leader was actually a good guy. Why are you, you know, seeing him in a negative way? And uh, of course, uh, 
family would just uh, ignore what I was saying. They probably would expect me to realize things at a later point in my life. So there was this uh, when I had my first confusion. And when I was, I was in the city uh, going to a secondary school, uh, there as well, I had a similar confusion. Uh, so with regard to certain heroes at school appearing as oppressors at home and vice versa. And mm -hmm. that always created a kind of a, a sense of confusion. So actually, who are the heroes? So to, to simplify it, as the Americans will put it, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Right. Yeah. There was a sense of confusion about, his, about it all the time. But by the age of, I think, 15, 16, then I, uh, I kind of made sense of what is, uh, I, don't, I don't mean to put it in a way that this is right and this is wrong, but I had a more stable sense of identity and culture and political establishment. And then I started making things, uh, making sense of the things in a better way. So at some point, I was, I mean, there are, the, for most of uh, my life until uh, I went to the university, I would just shut up because I was afraid of sharing my opinion, revealing the true self of me, whether it's in my village in community or whether it was at school setting. But after the, after the age of um, 16, 17, after I started university, I stopped hiding anything of that sort. And from that point on, I think I was more honest with myself, with my identity, if I can say so, because I don't think identity as one thing, as, as having one core, it has a lot of lanes, like it's not a one-way road, it's a huge road with probably 16 lanes. <laughs> so I started making peace with my Armenianness, with my Kurdishness, with being uh, with with being a non-Turkish person. Because in my childhood I will think that well the Turks I the Turks are absolutely superior than Kurds. So why I'm not a Turk? I will be thinking of this. So th these rifts, these uh, confusions, this um sense of inferiority will be there uh, i think until i uh, probably uh, finished my high school hmm. and what was it about university that made you more open was it the environment of the university the academic environment where you know open conversation leads to um, a more let's say fruitful discussion or was it because of your maturity of having gone through what you've been going through, you know, through your early childhood and probably early teenage years, you know, what, what was it about university or that particular time that made you become honest with who you are? It's very difficult actually to put my finger on it. So uh, was it my, probably it was because of the sense that, it's not a good thing to hide the, your true self anymore. Maybe a realization that comes with the age. I think that's uh, what I can say. Uh, I don't know if there was a specific event or a specific um, stage that made me realize certain things, but at some point uh, I started not hiding because I thought probably psychologically it will be better to be in peace with who I am yeah. and not to hide this from the rest of the world. Uh, that's how I would probably be stable psychologically. Mm. But uh, of mm. course, I started reading a lot of literature uh, at high school and reading in that sense, I think helped help me to, to be true to myself. Hmm. Yeah, or to probably not hide. So um, it was also a matter of honesty. I think that there is a kind of morality that kicks in when you are at a certain age. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I, I really relate to that because it was also at university, I think for my master's, not for my bachelor's, where I really was looking inward to see who I really was, you know, what I liked, what I didn't like, um, what my values were, what my principles were. And I, yeah, it, it was just this pivotal moment in my life where suddenly everything changed. Um, I, I became closer to finding out who I truly was. And, um, and, you know, because what we, what we just talked about was um, the manifestation of an identity, but we didn't talk about how to build one. Um, what's your interpretation of, you know, building an identity? Is it, is it important to have one or is it important to not stick to one, but develop it as you grow up and have it ever changing? What's your opinion on identity? Yeah, that's a very interesting and tough question. Uh, I mean, it, it could mean whether identity matters or not. Um, I have met several people who's, who were arguing that identity in that sense doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, but I think, I don't know, Hannah Arendt in that sense have always appeared interesting to me because of her sentence that when you are attacked as a Jew, you defend yourself as a Jew. And I think the moment, and uh, you will remember this from just uh, our previous questions, that the moment you start make, making sense of your identity is the moment that when part of your identity or all of your identity is under attack uh, from the environment, so this could be coming from your family, it could be related to your personality, you know, your character, or it could be coming from political uh, and cultural environment due to your appearance or your political views. So I think in that sense, when some part of what makes you, you is under attack, then uh, you started developing a sense of uh, defending that part and in that sense, it is important to stick to it. But otherwise, if it is not under attack, I consider my identity very fluid, very flexible. And actually, at, at some point, I consider not having an identity at all. I would be very fine with it. Hmm. It really doesn't matter who or what you are, because as you pointed out, it's also a matter of making, creating, shaping your identity. So you do not inherit it all from your family, from your environment. This flexibility allows you to create the kind of identity you want to see, like that cliche be the, be the change you want to see. So if you want to see a certain um, model of person, a certain model of human being, then you absolutely have to shape it because you do not inherit it in any way. Hmm. So, so it will be easy for all of us uh, not to be attacked in any way because of our appearance or our language or our place of birth. Uh, in that way, we will be able to create our identities more freely and we will probably consider more choices. But because of these attacks at the early age, uh, you are kind of forced into building your identity as a Kurdish person or as an Armenian person or as a Kurdish Armenian. And this is very limiting. I wish I didn't have to, you know, um, uh, I didn't have to uh, discover my identity in that way. I wish I, I would be building it uh, from inside out, but that doesn't always uh, happen. And uh, in many cases, it's actually not your choice. Mm, that's, that's, <laughs> that's so interesting. I've never heard it put like that before. And I, I think looking back at my own life, I think I, I, I agree that's what happens. We're, it's when it's when people attack certain parts of you that what you yeah you have to defend it you have to stand up for your your culture and your heritage and to be strong and to not let other people um make it inferior um wow <laughs> thank you for thank you so much for 
Tell me that. I needed that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, um, uh, probably in in your case, it's different. So everybody experiences it differently, right? So in our case, uh, our appearance does not really much differ from the appearance of others in Turkey. So you could be an Armenian, um, an Assyrian, an Arab, a Turkish, and you will get away with it yeah. as long as you don't mention your culture or your mother tongue. And as long as your accent doesn't give give it away, right? Yes. So you you can be a Kurdish person, but the people around you will probably not realize it unless you express it. Yes. And in many settings, it becomes a problem. So the moment you start saying that I am a Kurd, so the 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 Turks around you will say, well, why why do you really have to express your identity? Right. I mean, we are all equals, but the moment they actually intervene when you say i'm a kurd or i'm an armenian then they make they reveal that that there, there's actually not that kind of equality so right the moment of their intervention comes uh, as an oppression i mean it, it reveals itself as an oppression and in that sense i uh, most of the time uh, when when you encounter this uh, when you encounter this reaction mm. it makes it clear to you that you don't really much have a choice in that sense so you either hide your identity or you have to um, anticipate this encounter and still be true to your identity mm. and uh, so that's why I say it's not most of the time, uh, part of it at least, most, most of the time it's not a choice you make. Hmm. You will either be, uh, you, you, you either hide you who you are or when you come out, so you will have to, uh, you will have to take into account facing the reaction that comes from, from the, the external uh, sources or uh, from the environment let's say yeah yeah it, it's i'm very glad you mentioned um the the fact of blending in with you know the turkish community just by physical appearances alone and the assyrians and and um and things like that because when i okay specifically when i talk to british chinese females um when they go back to hong kong for example where their parents are from um, they always tell me that okay, they can they can blend in because of their physical appearance. You know, you you can't tell just by looking at their face um, that they were born in the UK, even though they were British Chinese, they were born in the UK. You can't tell if you just looked at their face among the whole population. You would think that they were native Hong Kong, even though inside and in here, their British values and it's very British in here, but very Chinese in here. But then there were some girls telling me, you know, during my research for this, you know, identity last year for my project, they were telling me that native Hong Kong people can tell not from their face, but from the way they dress and the way they move, that they're not native Hong Kong. And I thought that this was just amazing. I, so I just want to ask you, even though you can blend in physically, are there sort of cultural elements, you know, fashion and um, movement, let's say, body movement, that the, the Turks can sort of identify you as Kurd, as Kurdish. Is there anything like that? Yeah, the part about Hong Kong is fascinating. Yes, uh, I think there will, there are certain elements that will give your identity away. So you realize we are talking. Um, at least I'm talking about it, like you know, coming out of the closet, like. You know, generally, uh, LGBT people will experience this. You know, it's very uh, most of societies are conservative, and LGBT identities will have quite difficulty in deciding whether to come out or not. And in the case of uh, Kurds or Armenians in Turkey, you would probably at some point in your life go through a similar. Uh, 
um, a similar situation where you have to decide whether to tell if you are a Kurd or not. And uh, yes, there are certain physical appearances, movements, but mostly I think the accent, the way people speak Turkish gives their identity away uh, because the South and the South, uh, Southeast and Eastern Turkey is predominantly Kurdish and people coming from that region uh, speak with, with an accent. And the moment you start speaking Turkish, this accent can be picked by uh, can be picked up by uh, non-Kurds or by those who consider themselves as, as Turks. That's one thing. So I think the most important thing is accent. And uh, at certain cases, uh, the color of skin will give it away. Uh, and of course, the the place of birth is another criteria, uh, criterion uh, where you can deduce whether this person is a true Turk or not. Uh, because uh, racism in many Western Turkish cities uh, come at you from the place of birth. So they won't make, uh, they won't understand if you are a Kurdish or a Turk, if you are a Kurd or, or, or a Turk from your accent or from your clothing or from your appearance. But uh, when you start interacting with them and when your place of birth comes out, then uh, they realize that you are from the Kurdish uh, majority part of the country. And again, discrimination starts. I say discrimination because I experienced a lot of it when I was trying to, let's say, rent an apartment, when I was trying to find a job. And many Kurds or Armenians like me, of course, face this. So there are certain criteria. And uh, I think the accent, the appearance, and place of birth are the, the three strong um, elements that give your identity away, although you will be trying to hide it. Mm. Although, even if you try to hide it, I mean. <laughs> Wait, why? Why are why is the Turkish government trying to suppress Kurdish expression and the Kurdish um, identity, in your opinion? Well, uh, of course, we have tried to understand or make sense of these dynamics, uh, especially the historical reasons. As historians uh, write about it, is that. Um, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, you know, before the Turkish state, there was Ottoman Empire. Uh, let's say before the First World War, the Ottoman Empire uh, basically ruled over today's Turkey, Iraq, Syria, Saudi Arabia, part of it anyway, uh, and other small uh, countries like Lebanon and Israel, Palestine. But during the war and after the war, uh, the the empire collapsed and new nation states were founded or non-nation states, just states were founded. And most of the maps, of course, was uh, drawn by uh, our British friends and, uh, and French British colonialists, let's say. So uh, the most common explanation that the historians come up with is that uh, the First World War and the years preceding uh, were kind of traumatic for the Turkish political elite. So they considered having a multicultural uh, country, a multicultural state as a dangerous thing because it ends up, um, it, it ends up um, partitioning the country from inside out. So if you want to have a state, a country, uh, a stable one, uh, a secure one um, for, the, for as long as you would like, then you have to uh, either uh, found a country that will only inhabit Turks, or if it inhabits other elements, other religious and ethnic elements than Turks, then you have to assimilate them. And uh, this trauma that the Turkish political elite went through uh, 
made them quite, uh, they say, hostile towards ethnic and religious identities that are not affiliated with Turks and Sunni Islam, let's say. That's the most common, I think, explanation in, in, uh, in um, history books uh, we come across. And I think I sense this personally as well. Uh, with, I, I can say that uh, this explanation uh, tells a lot because the moment you start expressing an ethnic or religious identity, a cultural identity, other than the, uh, the Turkish identity in Turkey, people will say that you are being a separatist. You know, don't do that we are going to end up losing our country because this is this is the way that uh, you know the countries get separated or uh, partitioned so look at yugoslavia so all these bad examples are there and they will uh, that's how at least the hostility towards other cultural identities and expressions start mm. Because, you know, Kurdistan, the geographical um, location of Kurdistan, it's sort of separated into you know, many different countries, like bits, bits by bit, bit by bit is separated. So bit, a bit in, um, let's say, southeastern Turkey and maybe in Iraq, northern Iraq and um, yes. in Iran. And, you know, what are the relationships between all these different minorities in these different countries? Is, is there a sense of solidarity with each other or do they each have very different um, uh, political opinions depending on the country that they're in? Well, if we are talking about now, uh, absolutely, there is a very strong sense of solidarity between the Kurds living in four parts of Kurdistan. So Kurdistan, of course, as a geography, it's a matter of contention where it starts and where it ends. For Turkish, for Kurdish nationalists, probably it's as big as it gets. And, and for <laughs> others, for Turkish Arab or Persian nationalists, it it doesn't exist, or it's a very small portion of uh, the geography that that is uh, inhabited by Kurds. Um, and I think historically as well, because I have uh, studied uh, history in order to write my uh, thesis, my research papers, historically as well, there, have, there has been a very strong sense of solidarity between the Kurds at this part of the border and that part of the border. I say this and that because until the end of the First World War, there was only one border. That was the border between the Ottomans and the uh, the Persian and um, uh, sorry the the Iranian Empire. So uh, there were several uh, Iranian dynasties and the Ottoman Empire. So there was only one border. So Kurdish historians refer to this as the second partitioning of Kurdistan. The first one being quite old uh, in ancient uh, history. But after the First World War, then suddenly there appears uh, to be more than four nation states and four parts of Kurdistan. So in the Kurdish vernacular, for instance, in Turkey, they will refer to uh, Syria as below the line. And the line they are speaking about is uh, the, the train uh, railway that was built by the Germans in the beginning of 20th century. So my father was in Syria for a time. He went there, he came back. So they will refer to that as below the line, not really a separate country. And in the Kurdish literature or the literature that is written by Kurds as well, you will see that they do not consider parts of Kurdistan as separate countries, but as the same country, nevertheless, uh, separated by uh, uh, by railways or by borders, official borders, which is not really recognized or not seen as legitimate by, by the local people. So in the sense, yes, there is that understanding that there are Kurds, there is this strong sense of solidarity, and there is 
also the the understanding that well kurdistan is partitioned by foreign forces mm. and that's not nothing natural or that doesn't come natural to the kurds who live there mm. when you mention the borders not being clearly defined how does that affect movement of people is is it quite is it still quite restricted is there still laws governing the movement of people you know, can you explain more about that well it's i think uh, kurdish the borders in kurdistan between the nation states of iraq iran syria and turkey probably are the most heavily among the most heavily guarded or uh, militarized borders on earth so uh, and this restricts the movement to a uh, to an extent uh, in which you will hear every week several people get killed either when they are trying to pass from turkey to iran or from iraq to turkey or from syria to Turkey. So these borders for uh, for the Kurds um, are borders between relatives or borders between, you know, neighbors. So mm. you do not actually stop moving from here to there just because there is uh, there is a wall or just because there is barbed wire. So they still try to pass and they continue um, trading. They continue buying and selling goods at one side of the barbed wire and to the other side of the barbed wire. And that's why uh, the, the call bars, that's a specific name for, um, um, for people who move goods between Iraq and Iran or between uh, Iran and Turkey so you will hear that every week or every month several of those get killed by either the Turkish or Iranian or Iraqi security forces so it affects it reduces the movement to a very really very um, to a very limited uh, movement but it doesn't stop people from moving or trading or moving goods between between the borders the official borders let's say yeah uh, just one sorry one example in 2011 uh, in in such occasion uh, uh, in an occasion uh, the turkish airplanes bombed those the, the kurds who were moving certain goods from iraq to the turkish part and 34 of them get killed at one in one instance that's known as the roboski massacre so uh, there are these uh, events in history as well in 1940s there was another episode in which 33 got killed again by the turkish soldiers so uh, there are events and continuous uh, let's say uh, Think, continues criminalization and um, massacres and murders of people who move between parts of Kurdistan. And that's also, I think, part of the official uh, policy or official, um, yeah, official policy of, of the, the, the four nation states that uh, rule over Kurdistan now. Hmm. Was there any protest to the to the killings at all? Yes, there are still protests. Um, hmm. That there, there were very widespread protests in 2011 after it happened, and from then on, every year there is the com commemoration of the uh, massacre and uh, wide widespread protests again. But for the last five or six years, well, since 2015, to be specific, the Turkish government is very hostile to any protest in Kurdistan, particularly in the Kurdish majority regions, uh, while also it's a, also a problem in, in Turkey in general. Mm. 
So the protests continue, and, uh, and but the nobody has been held responsible uh, for the event. I mean, you will think that the Turkish uh, democracy is a stronger one right now. Well, actually, in 1940s, when these those 33 Kurdish uh, villagers were killed by uh, by a Turkish um, platoon, the the responsible uh, commander was punished, and uh, he committed suicide when he was in prison. But in the late massacre in 2011, after that, nobody was punished. So with no high rank or low rank, uh, uh, let's say, military officers being punished, this is basically um, a case of, I mean, the, 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 the impunity is a, is a very established policy within the Turkish government with regard to these massacres or murders. You you wrote a paper that I found really, really interesting. Um, it was called Kurds, A History of Deliberate and Reactive Statelessness. Uh, well, I just want to say thank you so much for writing this. I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Um, can you tell us a bit more about this deliberate and reactive statelessness when it comes to Kurdistan? Well, the, the, that story is always interesting to me as well. Uh, so my father, although he is uh, an Armenian descent, uh, he is a, a Kurdish singer poet. Uh, they call Dengbej. So they have this immense memory of songs and stories. And uh, especially in rural areas, uh, there are they, they, they used to be like the TV, the cinema, the radio, all this entertainment. <laughs> in one <laughs> so so my father will tell a lot of stories and he still tells i when i speak to him he still uh, tells those stories and i enjoy listening to him so of course i grew up with all the stories about kurdish uh, heroes or uh, kurdish battles with the turkish or other forces and uh, when I started uh, doing research for my PhD, uh, we of course collaborated with some friends, uh, especially when the Hamelink from uh, from the Netherlands. We, we we had been working on these cultural issues for a long time. So I suddenly realized that uh, some stories that my father told were kind of corroborating historical stories that actually taken place and that there are uh, in historians have written about them in detail so i said okay let's uh, go deep on that uh, because in the songs and in stories you get a sense of what a state is for the kurds the state is basically an intruder something you want to stay away from so it means taxes, it means conscription, it means all this source of bureaucracy that you really don't want to deal with, but at some point in your life, you have to deal. So as, soon, as, as much as you can say, you can stay, stay away from it, but if you cannot stay away from it, then you will have to deal with it in a, in a certain way. But I realized that this is not only really a social practice, that this is a kind of political philosophy among the Kurds. When the Ottoman uh, Sultan, the, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire back then, uh, Selim, he, he wins a war by the help of the 30 confederation, tribal confederations of the Kurds. And he calls the person who brought all these confederations together and he says, okay, now tell me, who wants to be the ruler of Kurdistan? So I can, you know, authorize him to be the ruler of Kurdistan and then I will be back to Istanbul or he will continue <laughs> conquering other places. <laughs> and uh, the, 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 the answer of the Kurdish uh, uh, figure, Idrisi Bidlisi, he is called or he is known, who made all this possible is, is very uh, interesting. And I 
think I could see this in my father's stories as well, because he, from his stories, I can say that there were at least two other episodes in the 20th century that happened in exactly the, the same way. I mean, the answer was exactly the same way. So Idris says, well, we, the Kurdish uh, nobles, notables, we actually consider ourselves as equals. So none of us would bow their head before another. So you just, it's better you just do not really appoint or authorize anyone as the ruler of Kurdistan. Just let us be, so every tribe or every noble notable be autonomous in their region, in their place, in their city or town. And that's the way we want to be. And Sultan says, okay, well, if that's what you want, uh, that's, a, I'm paraphrasing, of course. And in 20th century, I see the same thing from the stories of my father. So I did some uh, reading about the history and I say, yes, actually this, this, the same thing again repeats itself. And I thought, okay, if, that, if, if there is this similar uh, incidents or events in history, then it cannot be coincidence. It has to be a choice it has to be coming from a, an understanding of freedom that has been really widespread, widespread in Kurdistan. And that is the, the understanding of freedom that we do not want to do anything with the state or we do not want to build a state in Kurdistan. We want to be as autonomous as possible. We want to stay from bureaucracy, taxation, conscription as much as possible. And that's the way we would like to build our political and so social institutions. That's the paper is basically about that, a different political philosophy of not, um, not living uh, under the rule of the state or trying to, to stay away from the state. But of course, uh, as a theoretical framework, I used James C. Scott's work, who also writes uh, about uh, the certain Asian communities who stayed away from the state. Hmm. And also the sort of landscape, the physical landscape of Kurdistan, you know, mountains and very difficult terrain to enter, was sort of a contributing factor to this sort of philosophy, political philosophy. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, I think we can safely say, yes, that is a historical, um, I mean, that is historically has been emphasized by uh, many sources. And uh, that's how the connection between Kurdistan and between James C. Scott's case is made because he is talking about Zomia, a, a very uh, mountainous region in uh, in Southeast Asia and Kurdistan is as well a very mountainous region. So uh, if you do not want to be captured by forces of civilization, you can go to the mountains all the time. So the Kurds have a saying, uh, they say uh, Kurds have no friends but the mountains. And there is another saying, they say, well, mountains of Kurdistan were not even captured by Alexander the Great. So there is always our mountains. Uh, and I think you are uh, correct in that sense. Yes, the geography, the, the availability of the mountains as a refuge to the community or to those who want to stay away from the state uh, provides uh, a certain advantage. Hmm. And Kurds have made use of that. But of course, as everything else in life, it also had two sides, you know, nothing has only one face. Everything has two faces. So this geography makes it possible for you to find a refuge in times when you want, but it also prevents a very, uh, I think, a very connected uh, political establishment to emerge as well. So it keeps you apart and it prevents in certain ways the emergence of a very homogeneous or a very orderly political entity 
or yeah. a very orderly social geography to emerge. Uh, so it's not a matter of good or bad, but if you find a refuge, then it also means uh, you will have hard time to bring everything together within that geography as well. Mm, mm, yeah, that's a good point. That's one of the points that uh, many, uh, let's say, academics make uh, about Kurdistan not being a state yet. I don't particularly agree with that, but of course it makes certain things difficult uh, in that sense. Hmm. What What are the reasons for your disagreement with those academics? Well, first they say it's a, um, it's a, you know, Kurdistan is a rugged terrain. It's a mountainous terrain, so it makes it difficult to forge a political unity between the people. And I say, well, that's not really the main or the most important reason. The most important reason is uh, they don't want to do it to start with, you know, bring everything together under the under one political authority, under one political establishment. So if they wanted to do it and they failed, then you will be right, but that's not the case. So uh, the other reason is like, um, mostly, you know, the literature on um, nationalism specifically, they say, you know, there are ethnicities and there are nations. So uh, if you have national consciousness that kind of um, takes you from being an ethnicity to becoming a nation, so this uh, consciousness uh, is the difference between societies who found a state and those who failed to find to found a state of their own. And I don't think this is really a matter of consciousness in that sense, because as early as uh, 17th century, there are Kurdish uh, authors uh, who have spoken about founding a Kurdish kingdom. So the idea that there, there are uh, there are Kurdish people with a separate sense of identity with a shared history, shared values. It's not a matter of consciousness. Again, it's a matter of uh, political philosophy. So uh, this linear understanding of history uh, puts the blame on Kurds because they don't have a state of their own. So if they will, another, another very, uh, I think, one of my favorites is that the Kurds are divided. That's why they don't have a state. Well, all other societies are also divided. There is no society that you can find actually united. Just a very simple example is the United States. It is as divided as it can get. So uh, this certain uh, linear reading of history blames the Kurds for not forging a state of their own and sees it as a failure, whereas I think it's not a failure and it's not the curse to be blamed to, to a certain extent because colonialism, British and French colonialism, as we pointed out, were the forces that draw these maps in the Middle East that we see now. Otherwise, they used to be a Kurdish political geography and a sense of uh, you know autonomy, at least, in several parts of Kurdistan, even if we do not see Kurdistan as a whole, as a geography, as an autonomous geography, but Kurdish communities and uh, political entities were basically autonomous. So nation state has uh, done much damage, but the most damage is done by colonialism, Western colonialism in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Um just moving on slightly to, to the last question I have for you, Dr. Baris. Um, you previously said to me that you didn't have a specific community or country to call home. Um, you know, apart from a physical place, a geographical place, where is home for you? Is it in people or is it another place? What's your interpretation of home for you? 
Well, that's a very tough question. So apart from the birthplace or the place you've probably spent your childhood, uh, where can you call home or where can be home? I think it, it will be the place where you don't feel strange in any way, where you feel like you are known and you know the place. And I really don't think that place is the place of my childhood either anymore, because that place is also strange to me now. And it was strange to me even when I was a child, as I said, uh, because of my Armenian ancestry from my father's side. Also because I would tend to think in, in, in a very different categories or very differently from, from the people around. So I'm not sure if there is really a place I can say I, I would feel uh, completely familiar with the geography and with the people. Probably it's uh, better not to call for a home and uh, acknowledge that we are all migrants on earth of some sort and try to make where we are, you know, try to um, somehow transform it into our homes by our good deeds, if that's possible, of course. Well, Dr. Nevi Baris, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Anthony. Thank you. So that is the end of episode 13. If you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Hanifi Baris, please check out our other episodes where we talk about identity from other cultures. We'd love to hear your thoughts on our topics. Episode 14 will be coming out for you this Wednesday, so please look out for that. And as always, thank you for listening and we'll talk next time.